0: Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter number 3. Uh, we're continuing our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you have the Hui Call app, you can open that up and uh, click on today's message. There's a button called Fill in Notes. If you click on that, it'll open up a web browser. You can type in notes, follow along with all the verses uh, in today's message. And so uh, I would encourage you, if you don't yet uh, have the Hui Call app, get that. Find some way to also follow along and write down notes, whether you grab a journal. Uh, We have uh, these really cool uh, orange uh, bold as a lion uh, journals available for $10 in our bookstore. If you want to grab one of those, grab one of those, take notes. Whatever you do, take really good notes, jot some thoughts down because God always speaks through his word and we need to remember what we've heard. And so uh, take really good notes. Philippians chapter three is where we find ourselves today. Just to give you a little uh, review for sake of context, Paul, pastored the church of Philippi, started it from scratch on his second missionary journey. About 10 or 11 years later, he finds himself in prison for preaching the gospel, writes a letter back to the church at Philippi. We sometimes refer to these as the prison epistles of Paul. And so he writes back to a church that he pastored for a while. And in this letter that Paul writes, we don't find any type of correction or rebuke, or hey, you gotta get things right or stop doing this. We just find a lot of joy and gratitude and Paul encourages them to basically take what they're doing up to the next level. And so that's where we find ourselves here today. Last week we took a look at how Paul had a really religious resume that he, at the end of the day, could not save him from his sin. He needed to be saved and forgiven by the grace of God, not by his religious works that he did. We're entitled today's message, "Counterculture Culture Christianity. We found ourselves in Philippians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1, read down through verse number 8 this morning. <laughs> Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he have whereof, he might trust the flesh, I more. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. I'm really excited about the things that God's doing here at Cala. We've seen uh, tremendous growth over the last probably three to six months in, in our church uh, and, and what God's doing through our church. And I think every single week we're seeing God do things where somebody's getting saved or baptized or uh, discipled or growing in their faith in some way or another. Uh, we're delighted today to welcome the Williams family to our church family. Guys, would you stand up for a moment if you would? Uh, we have Trey, who's going to be serving on our church staff as a pastoral assistant. His wife, Lee, Riley, Avery, and Kenley, their daughters. So let's welcome them to our church family here today. <laughs> Thank you guys. You can be seated. Uh, We'll have a reception for them this afternoon from 3 to 5. Feel free to stop by anytime between 3 and 5. Very informal get-together just to give you a chance to get to know them and spend some time with them this afternoon. I hope you'll do that. But as the, uh, the Williams family have looked at, uh, at moving here, no doubt people have had questions for them. Like, hey, what are you moving to? Do you guys have a, a place already uh, bought over there? Do you know where you're going to live? Do you, do you know a lot of people over there? In fact, of the matter is, is, it doesn't, on paper, make a lot of sense. They're moving to one of the most expensive cities in the entire United States for cost of living. Now, San Diego, where they come from, was expensive, but this is kind of next level expensive. Uh, and so uh, they're moving to a place where they really don't know anybody at all. You know, save our church family, they don't know anybody really outside of this room, probably, uh, here in the whole state of Hawaii. Uh, as far as a good time for them to move, uh, one of their daughters just graduated high school, the other is getting ready to be a senior in high school. Not a great time to move. Uh, what are they coming to? Is it you know, a good setup that we have going on for them? Uh, really, the, the the salary that, that pays getting tra- getting paid is a very meager salary, uh, and we're just really trusting God to, to do something special there. So from a perspective, I think that a lot of people look at this and go, well, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now, let me tell you this, from a Christian perspective, if you and I, our Christian life that we live, makes sense to the average unsaved guy, we're probably not living by faith any longer. If the, the world that we live in and the things that we do, the, the world that we live in looks at our life and go, yeah, I kind of see how why you would want to do what you do, it probably is not living by faith the way that we should. Trey and his wife have figured out in the last couple of days. About $1.1 million in Honolulu will get you a really nice fixer-upper. And so you're going to need to do a lot of work to it. It's going to be really small, uh, and you might be able to fit one car in what they call a carport, uh, but chances are you'll have to be fighting for street parking and everything else with all the other crazies in the neighborhood. That's what you get for a million bucks plus here, right? A little bit of an eye-opener, I think, but here's the thing. When they got here, they said, hey, we didn't come to get a nice place to live. Uh, We didn't come to live in a nice neighborhood. Uh, We're not looking for a pool or a hotel. We've already had all those things. We're just looking at serve Jesus. And to the unsaved person, they would look at that and go, wow, that's kind of a downgrade for you guys, wouldn't you say? But I think they would say, hey, this is an upgrade for us if we can be of more use to the cause of Christ. You see, Christianity should live counter to the culture. We live in a society today where Christianity is just kind of the sprinkling on the top that we do of the life that the world gives us. When God says, no, 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 we're not to take the... Life And just put some sprinkles on the top. We're to take the world's life, throw it in the garbage can and start from scratch with Jesus Christ as the foundation. But again, to the unsaved world, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Because the world, the world's impressed by status. What kind of car do you drive? What kind of neighborhood do you live in? Where do your kids go to school? Where did you graduate from? What were your grades like? What did you major in? Are there any titles that come before your name or after your name? Do you have any fancy letters that you get to put on the end of all your emails that you send? The world is impressed by status. How many followers do you have on Instagram? How many followers do you have on Twitter? how How big is your social media presence? Do you have a platform? Have you written any books? The world is impressed by status. For those our folks in our church that serve in the military, hey, what branch of the military are you in? What rank are you? What position and title do you have? Where have you served before? What unit were you in before? Oh, that one. And we are automatically impressed by status is what the world wants to. And we find that really since the beginning of time, man has always wanted to be better than his peers. This is not a new phenomenon where we try to, to see how we measure up to other people. This has been since the very beginning of time. He had two brothers who brought a sacrifice to God. God accepted one and rejected the other. And what was the result of that? The very first murder that we find recorded in human history took place because one person wasn't as good as somebody else, so he thought he would eliminate the competition, his own brother, and kill him. And it's funny, even if we look back to the beginning of time, we see that God doesn't do anything by accident. Those two brothers, Cain and Abel, one brought a sacrifice of herbs and berries The other brought a sacrifice of a blood of an animal who was killed. God accepted the blood sacrifice and rejected the fruit sacrifice or herb sacrifice, if you will, because from the very beginning of time, when you and I sin, something has to die, always. The wages of sin is death. And so from the very beginning of time, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and they said, oh, no, we're naked. God took the coat of skins of animals, put those animals to death to cover Adam and Eve in their nakedness because from the beginning of time, when we sin, something must die. And that's no different for you and I today. If you're a sinner and you are because the Bible says that we have somebody has to die to pay for your sin. There's none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because we've sinned, sin has consequences. What are the consequences? Romans 6:23. the wages of sin is death. Someone has to die. Either you can die. If you die, you will die not only a physical death, but a spiritual death where you'll be separated from God and forever in a place called hell. That's what you deserve, that's what I deserve because we've sinned against God and the wages of sin is death. Hell, the Bible refers in the book of Revelation, as the second death that comes after our physical death, that's what we deserve. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8 says, You see, I was supposed to die, but Jesus died in my place. That's why that song, oh man, I love to hear that song, that Jesus took upon him my blame and upon him my sin. And he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I love the truth of that because that was my sin that he put to death. He didn't deserve to die for my sin, but he chose to. And so Jesus Christ, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That you and I deserve to die, but Jesus died for us. But you're going to continue to die unless you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You see, there must be a time, a date, a place in your life where you have accepted Christ as Savior. Jesus is in John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Has there been a time, a date, a place for you, not about church attendance, or I've always gone to church or anything like that, but a time where you've been saved from your sin because you need to be saved from your sin because God requires a sacrifice as payment for your sin. But you see, Cain and Abel, one brother was jealous of the other and killed him as a result of wanting his status. And from the very beginning of time, we wanted to know, do I measure up to other people? But you see, comparison is really just a result of pride. Pride says, I'm better than you. And if you're taking notes, and I recommend that you do, write down this thought, pride destroys everything. I say that again and again because the number one problem in your marriage is pride. The number one problem in your workplace is pride. The number one problem in your neighborhood, on your street, with your neighbor, is pride. The Bible says only by pride comes contention. And pride destroys everything. And so comparison is really just a result of pride. It grieves my soul to see so much racism stirred up in our nation today and how everything becomes about race at, at one point or another. Did you know what the root of racism is? Pride. Pride. I'm racially superior to you. Or I racially deserve more than you. Or I deserve to get head of the line privileges over you because of this. But the fact of the matter is, humility does away with pride, and pride does, uh, and humility does also does away with racism. So, again, we're not going to be a church who bangs the drum every Sunday about racism. We're going to be the church that bangs the drum every Sunday about the gospel and Jesus Christ and humility, because that resolves everything. If the root of contention is pride, then humility is the antidote for that. It destroys the contention that we have, and so we need to learn to walk in humility. But comparison says, "Hey, how do I measure up against you?" (coughs) When I was in the Navy, (coughs) excuse me, twice a year we'd have to do our evaluations, and there was basically they 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 would score you in different categories, and uh, these categories you had a maximum of four points in each category that you had, and you wanted to try to score as high as you could. And basically, if you were uh, an average sailor, you didn't cause any problems or anything like that, you basically got high marks in all the categories. It's just how it went. And you were deemed a 4.0 sailor. You got high marks in every category, 4.0 in every category. But then they found that basically that became the default norm. It wasn't that you were better than everybody else. It's just that you weren't any worse than everybody else. And so then they created another evaluation system where there was now a 5.0 that was reserved for like the top of the top, right? You could be an average three 3- or four O sailor, but the top of the top were five O sailors. And what do you think happened? Gradually, everybody began to creep up into being five O sailors. You know, that everybody became a five O, and then they began to limit like how many five O's you can give and certain evaluations. But here's the thing it all came down to where do I stack up against my peers? Who gets advanced and who doesn't based on who's better than the other person? And then, no doubt, Twice a year, the advancement results would come out, and you go, how does this knucklehead get advanced? That guy is such a dirtbag, so lazy. How does somebody like that get advanced, and then I didn't? Or this guy over here, and what is it? It's comparison, and it's automatically built into us. How do I stand up against everybody else? And here's what Paul told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves to some that commend themselves but they themselves, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Paul says we're not going to be the types of people who pat themselves on their back and then compare themselves based on how everybody else is doing. I often tell people, I don't want you to be the type of Christian that I am. I want you to be the type of Christian that Jesus Christ was. And so your goal is not to get on my level. Your goal is to get on Jesus's level. Because I am a flawed individual. Don't compare yourself to me. Now, I'm like Paul, but I'll say, hey, while I'm following Christ, you're welcome to follow me. Imitate the things that I do, the good things that you see in my life that are Christ-like. You're welcome to copy those and emulate those. But at the end of the day, your goal is not to be a, a Christian like Anthony. Your goal at the end of the day is to be like Jesus. And so if you want to compare yourself to someone, there's two people you can compare yourself to. First, Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'm going to fall short every single time. Exactly, but that's what we're shooting for. That's what the goal is. That's what Christian maturity looks like, Christ-likeness. That's what I want to be. I want to love like Jesus loved. I want to care like Jesus cared. I want to pray like Jesus prayed. I want to be involved and serve like Jesus served. That's what I'm shooting for. So you're welcome to compare yourself to Jesus. The second person you're you're able to compare yourself to and not be in any trouble would be yourself. Am I doing better than I was six months ago? Am I doing better than I was a year ago? And when we say better, again, better is a relative term. But we need to look at things like, how is my love for the Lord compared to the way that it was a year ago? How is my love for God's word the way it was a year ago? How's my love for the preaching of God's word the way it was a year ago? How's my prayer life compared to where I was a year ago? How about my love for people? How about my concern for the lost? desire for spiritual things, desire for Jesus. All those are things that we can quantify to say, am I doing better than I was this time last year or this time six months ago? Oftentimes I'll talk with people and I'll say, hey, when was the time that you were the closest in your walk with God? When was the time that you would say, I was, man, if I was any closer to God, I think I could have reached out and touched him. And oftentimes people have some time in their life where, whether it's a time they're in college or when they're in high school or man, I was really involved in this college Bible study or I had a youth group that was really on fire for God. I was in my Bible every day and we were was constantly praying we were texting back and forth Bible verses that we read and stuff like that. It was so on fire for God, but that was a long time ago. And here's the thing. If there was ever a time in your life where you were closer to God than you are now, the Bible has a word for that. Do you know what it's called? Anybody want to help me? Backslidden. Backslidden. And we look at that and say, well, isn't that a negative term? Yeah, because we're not supposed to go backwards, we're supposed to go forward. Now, please understand that Christian growth is not linear up and to the right all the way. You might be in a period right now where you say, man, it's just up and to the right. Okay, but brace yourself because you're going to have some dips along the way. And so while there will be peaks and valleys in our Christian life, we should be trending upward at the end of the day. I should be able to look and see Christian growth over the last 12 months. The last 12 years, if I'm doing it the right way, I should see trending growth up. I might be in a little bit of a slump right now, but I'm coming back out of it. That's the idea. Because if you're you're a perfectionist, I have perfectionist tendencies because there's some areas in my life where I just don't care. Making my bed in the morning, don't care uh, at all. I'm just going to sleep in it again tonight. No need to make it. So I'm not a perfectionist in every area. But there's some areas where I'm really a perfectionist that if I miss the mark, it's just a total waste. It's a wash. Like, I, I didn't read my Bible today. I'm just done. I'm a terrible Christian. I'm never going to try to ever do anything spiritual again because I misread my Bible this morning, right? I was like, we can still read it this afternoon. Nope, nope, I missed it this morning, and so I'm just, I'm done for the day. I'll start over next Monday, right? Or June 1st, or, you know, next year, New Year's Eve. No. And so we get this idea that, you know, it has to be up and to the right. If you're hitting a dip, it's fine. Just keep pushing. Keep moving forward, but it's okay to compare yourself against yourself. The problem comes when you begin to compare yourself against somebody else. Because their walk is different than your walk. Their relationship with God is different than your relationship with God. I remember several years ago, I ran the uh, LA Marathon. And there was a guy, they have different pace groups. If you want to run a four hour marathon, there's a guy with a big stick with a sign that says four hours on it. And you stay with him cross the finish line in four hours. There's somebody I mean, with a five-hour stick and a six-hour stick. And if you want to run in a certain time, stay with this group and you'll make it. And it's so funny, the guy with the, the, the four-hour stick that, that was running with it, we're like mile three out of 26.2. Mile three, there's people that are sprinting to catch up with the sign, and then they'll stop and they'll double over like this and breathe. And then they'll run really fast, and then they'll catch back up, and then they'll double over and breathe. And it's just like, I hate to break it too, but you're not going to make it in four hours, right? But they had this idea that they got to stay with that number because somebody else is doing it or somebody else said that they should. And what they failed to do is they failed to run their own race. Are you with me? Spiritual application, run your own race. Your story is not my story. Your background is not my background. My background is not yours. Yours is not mine. You do your thing. I'll do mine. We're both going to pursue Jesus Christ. And the way that you do that, the growth rate that you're on the, the path that you take to get there might be different than mine, and that's okay. But the problem comes is when we try to, to, to apples for apples compare ourselves with other people, we ruin it. Theodore Roosevelt said that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparing myself with other people keeps me from actually enjoying the Christian life. keeps me from enjoying the blessings that God's given me. Because maybe I don't have as many kids as you did and I wanted that many kids. Maybe my kids don't go to the school that your kids go to and so I'm disappointed by that. Maybe your, your marriage is better than mine on the surface because you don't know what happens behind closed doors and so to compare yourself against somebody else's marriage is foolish. It's just gonna rob you of the joy of your own marriage. Don't do it. But you know what's funny is that even pastors oftentimes get into comparison with one another. Meet another pastor, I say, hey, I'm Anthony King, I'm pastor of Huey College Baptist Church in Honolulu out by Alamana Center. You know one of the first questions people ask me? First question, what do you think it is? How big is your church, right? How big? How big is your church? Why? Because they want to identify whether or not this is a cute little hobby that I do on the weekend or whether I'm actually worthy of their respect. Pastors do this to other pastors. And so several years ago, uh, I got the idea that when people say, how big is your church? I say about 7,000 square feet, (laughs) give or take. Our auditorium is probably 3,500 square feet or so. It's kind of a weird layout because it's like a long rectangle. It's like the size of a city block. And so on the outside, it looks really small, but when you get inside, it's like, wow, this is bigger than I thought it was. And then I just stand there with a smile on my face. <laughs> that's what you thats what you wanted to know, right? How, how large our facility is? Oh, right. You want to know how many people show up every single Sunday morning, right? Oh, got it. You see, thats that's a different thing than what I was thinking. And it's funny because oftentimes that we fall into a trap because we think that God uses the same metrics as the world uses to measure success. And there's, there's so much garbage on the internet w- in dealing with the church and church leadership and pastoral leadership and stuff like that. There are many pastors who deem themselves as CEOs of a business and the business being the church itself. And they run it like a business. They have a board that they have and they have a financial administrator that makes sure that they're meeting all their metrics and things like that. And really, when it comes down to churches who manage their churches as business and see their pastors as CEOs, really they categorize the success or failure of a church based on two categories, sometimes referred to as nickels and noses, financial intake and the number of people who sit in a seat on a Sunday morning. Nickels and noses that determines is your church successful or not. And then they, from that, reduce things like for the number of attenders that you have, what's the, the average revenue of each attender that you have? What are the expenses on a monthly basis? And do we get a return on investment on the money that goes out the door? And they, they run it with spreadsheets and pie charts and stuff like that. Hey, look, I'm a data guy. I love to analyze stuff. But at the end of the day, we don't determine the success or failure of the church based on spreadsheets. Because God doesn't measure success and failure based on the way the world measures success and failure. Talking with a man this week about the, the failures of the prosperity gospel. And just know this prosperity gospel is not a gospel, it's a false gospel. The prosperity gospel says that Jesus came to make you fabulously wealthy and to take away all of your physical sickness. And if you're not rich and you're not physically well, it's a failure on your part because God came to give you all of that. And that if you want a new car, God wants you to have a new car. And if you can't afford it, you just need to go down to the dealership and claim it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I claim this Mercedes Benz E-Class in the name of Jesus. And you laugh, you laugh. But did you know that there are people that Jesus died for that go down to a Mercedes dealership and sit behind the driver's wheel and say, in the name of Jesus, I claim this car. And it breaks my heart. Because you think that Jesus came and died on a cross so that you can drive a new car? You missed the point. The greatest problem that the world faces today is not poverty. The greatest problem that the world faces today is not physical ailments. We needed a Savior because we are sin sick. We don't need a Savior because we're broke. We live in one of the wealthiest nations in the history of human civilization. To say that Jesus came to make us more rich just makes Jesus, Jesus an idol giver. And if you would stop for just 30 seconds and parse through a portion of the New Testament, you would see that our belief structure is based on a man that didn't have a place to lay his head at night and didn't know where his next meal was coming from. I think we would have to say that the idea that prosperity and health, wealth, and status wasn't Jesus' primary means for coming. And so the idea that Jesus came to make us fabulously wealthy is a great idea. You know why? Because it, it fits our human, fallen craving of our sin-sick soul. Then who doesn't want to follow a guy that just wants you to be wealthy who just wants you to be rich, who doesn't ask anything in return of you, doesn't require any sacrifice on your part, just wants to give you all the stuff. But you see, the problem with the prosperity gospel is that they measure success by using the world's scorecard. Do you drive a nice car? If so, you're successful. And you know, one of the, the failures of the prosperity gospel is this. There's no death with dignity in the prosperity gospel. There was a famous uh, prosperity gospel preacher who preached that you know God would take away all of your sickness. All you had to do is declare that you were well and you would be well. That if you had cancer, all you had to do was say, cancer be gone in the name of Jesus and cancer would just leave your body because you had the opportunity to declare yourself well. You know The problem is the pastor who had preached that for decades himself got sick with cancer and couldn't tell anyone. You know why? Because then it would be a failure of faith on his part because he wasn't good enough and he made up a lie about how he was fine, he was just trying to lose weight, while his body, racked with cancer, continued to die day by day. And he died an embarrassing death because he couldn't say that he had enough faith. So it's a, it's a losing zero-sum game, but it's built upon the idea of comparison and having more stuff. And so God doesn't use the same scorecard that we use. Isaiah chapter 55, verse number 8, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul says, hey, if you want to compare things, I'll win every single time. Take a look what he says in verse number five here. Or, I'm sorry, verse number four. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath, whereof he might trust the flesh, I'm more. You think you got a reason to brag? I'm going to beat you ten times out of ten. You think you're better than anybody else? I'm better than you in every single area that you can imagine, is what Paul's saying here. And so Paul says, if You want to play a comparison game? I can, I can play that. You know, when we first started Who We Call it, probably the first 90 days or so, um, it, was, it was so exciting to see what God was doing. Really felt like God was doing, getting ready to do something really special here, and He has. That first Sunday, we had 86 people there, and it was awesome. And I remember our family's bank account was at zero. Uh, I remember our church bank account was at about $150 we had left to our church's name at that point. And I remember Larry Gregory counted the offering. He brought me a three by five card. said, Pastor, here's the count from today's offering. And I looked at the number. It was about $1,200 or so. And I said to him, I'll never forget it if I live to be 120. I'll never forget this moment. I said to him, praise God, Larry, we're going to make it another week. <laughs> That's all we got. This will get us through seven more days. We're going to have church next Sunday because of this offering. Praise God. Next week, we had... Went from 86 down to about 60 the second week. He brought me the offering the next week. Pastor, has the offering. It's about $800. I said, Larry, praise God, we're going to make it one more week. The next week, our attendance went down to like 45. The offering that week, I think, it was about $500. I said, This is enough to make it at least one more week. Now, we don't, know, we're not, we don't have enough to pay our rent for a month, but this is going to get us by week by week. And so we were just trusting God week after week. And I remember after those days went by, you know, that. Every Sunday after the service was over, I'd go back and I'd look at that, the back table. We had an offering, uh, usher count sheet, how many kids were here, how many people were in the main auditorium, stuff like that. And I would look at those numbers and I would look at the count from the offering and I would determine whether it was a good day or a bad day. Based on just those two numbers. Number of people in seats and the amount of the offering, whether or not we had a good day. And he said, sounds a lot like nickels and noses. Yep, sure was. Because for me, that's all I could see tangibly. But... The problem is, is that God's not impressed by the things that take place on the outside. God's impressed with the heart. And here's the thing for data junkies like me there's not a spot on the spreadsheet for things that take place in the heart. I remember the very first, man, probably first six to eight weeks of we a Tommy Peralta got saved. We had a, a tick mark for salvations, and so we put Tommy in the salvation category. But you know the things that happened in Tommy's life over the next six months to a year? We didn't have a place in the spreadsheet for that. Tommy brought his Bible to church every week and Tommy was writing notes in his Bible. We don't have a place for guy brought Bible and wrote notes in Bible. We don't have a column for that in the spreadsheet. But I was encouraged by what was taking place in Tommy's life. That first May, we baptized our first people that we'd ever baptized in the history of our church. We baptized eight people. You know who was one of those people that got baptized? Tommy was one of those. And I got to mark him off in the baptism category, but here's the thing. God continued to do work in Tommy's life, and there wasn't a place in the spreadsheet for that. Because God's not impressed by the things that we can put and quantify and measure. God's impressed with the heart. Tommy and Iris were the first couple that I ever married at Huicalla, ever. July 4th, we got married. First wedding i'd ever done i thought man i don't want to mess this up right and here's the thing while i marked off that i did my first wedding what god's done in their life over the last seven and a half years i don't really have a place in a spreadsheet to put all the things that's taken place because god is not impressed with stuff god's impressed with the heart and so again you and i need to look at the success or failure of our life not based on uh, did i get a better job am i making more money did we uh, were able to move into that neighborhood what is god doing in my heart And again, that's a little bit harder to quantify. But maybe the better question to ask is, "Where's my treasure?" Because where your treasure, that's where your heart is. And so again, God takes a look at the heart. Turn back if you would to uh, Matthew chapter eight in your Bible. Keep your finger in Philippians. We're coming back. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter eight and take a look at this? Matthew chapter eight, verse number five. Matthew chapter 8, verse number 5. Now when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came into him a centurion beseeching him. Centurion was a Roman soldier who had a hundred men underneath him. Hence the name Centurion. Roman soldier, people underneath him. He would have been a higher up guy. And he's looking for Jesus. Verse number 6. He's saying unto him, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented, and Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. Jesus says, don't worry, I'll come to your house, I'll heal him. And here's what the centurion said. Verse number eight. Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And my servant do this, and he doeth it. And he says, Jesus, you don't even have to come over. I know what this is like. I'm a guy who tells people what to do, and they just do it. I know that if you say something to happen, it's going to happen. Verse number 10. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith. No, not in Israel. Did you know that this is the one time in the entire Bible that we find a record of Jesus being shocked, astonished, and amazed. One time, and one time only. Was he shocked by the fact that a Roman Gentile had come to him to ask something from him? No. Was he impressed that this wasn't just a Roman soldier, but he was a centurion, a person of authority? No. Was he impressed that this guy could boss people around, and they could do what he wanted to do? No. Jesus wasn't impressed by any of that. Jesus was impressed by his faith. Jesus was impressed by his heart. God's not impressed with all the extra stuff that you got going on. He's impressed by your heart. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse number six. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not improbable or unlikely. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God doesn't care about all the stuff. God cares about your heart. Those are the things that impress God. As Samuel was to anoint the second king of Israel, Saul had blown it, and God told Samuel, go to Jesse's house and anoint the second king of Israel. And and Samuel says to Jesse, Jesse, line up all your boys. I'm gonna anoint the next king. And so Jesse lines up all of his boys. And I can imagine Jesse... As any dad who knows his kids is thinking, it's probably that guy over there, you know, he's the good looking one, he's the one that everybody listens to. He's the big brother, he's the one that everybody, you know, always does what he says. Or maybe it's this one over here, because he's stronger, he's tougher, and if the king has to go to battle, he's probably the guy that's gonna be able to do it. And Samuel walks through all of his boys and he's just like, Jesse, I hate to say it, man, but you got any more kids? Because next king's not here. And Jesse's like, ah uh, I mean, there's David. I mean, David's the youngest one. He's the run of the the crew. I mean, he's the shepherd boy. I mean, he's the one who's out like playing his harp and singing for sheep all day. I mean, there's David. And here's what the Lord said unto Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, verse number 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor the height of his stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So, God's not impressed with our outward appearance. God's impressed with our heart. Now, I want to pause here for just a second and clarify something. Sometimes people misuse this passage of Scripture to say that it doesn't matter what the outside looks like because God knows my heart. I know I'm rough around the edges. I cough, I drink, I smoke. I probably do things that I shouldn't do, but God knows my heart. Lord knows my heart. But, here's what this verse says, man looketh on the outward appearance. God knows your heart, sure, but to everybody else you look like an unsaved, reprobate sinner to everyone else. So, while God looks on the heart, it's important for you and I as, here's what the New Testament calls us, ambassadors for Christ, to ensure that the outside actually matches the inside. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So my heart's got to be right for God, but my outward appearance has to be right as an ambassador for Christ. So some people misuse this and go, well, it doesn't matter what my outside looks like. This looks like the inside. God knows my heart. No, no, no. Got to make sure the outside matches as well. (laughs) We We ordered food the other day, and I had a guy deliver it to us. And this dude, like... If I hadn't delivered food and was expecting somebody, I would not have opened the door for this guy. I mean, he looked like, like meth riding a bicycle is what this guy looked like. I mean, seriously, And he showed up on a bicycle with my food. And it's just like, dude. <laughs> and so cracked the door open, and he's like, hey, I got your food. Good. And if it hadn't been sealed with that seal that they put, sticker they put across the top, I wouldn't have touched it. Like, seriously, this dude looked rough. Nice guy, called me by name, smiled. I tipped well. I gave him an invitation to church. I mean, nice-looking guy, but his appearance was a little bit off-putting to me. Like, this guy, like, clothes not clean, did not look like, like, didn't look like a food delivery person, I'll say that much. Now, you say, well, that's judgmental of you. Hey, all of us make judgment based on the uh, things that we see immediately, you know? Always. You see some guy that's, you know, big, huge, jacked guy like your pastor, you know? You <laughs> what part was funny about that? <laughs> you see some guy with big jack muscles you think that guy spends a lot of time in the gym pays really close attention to what he eats you know but what about you know i I remember i think it was um i read an article several years ago dwight howard that used to play for the lakers uh and played for the rockets i think he's played for everybody in the nba at this point had a had a, a candy addiction where he was eating like 25 candy bars a day right and he began to have all these health problems, like his, his fingers going numb and stuff like that. And and, stuff, and he basically went to the doctor and they said, dude, you got to stop. And he would like stash candy bars throughout his house. But you would look at somebody like that who's got an incredible physique and a world-class athlete. And you say, that dude probably, you know, has a personal chef making all of his food. No, the dude's addicted to candy bars, you know? All to say, we make quick judgment based on what we see on the outside, but that's not always reality. So for what does that mean for us as Christians? While God looks on the heart, yes, we need to make sure that our external appearance matches what's going on in the inside. Because here's the thing. I hope that you as, as my church family that loves me as your pastor, if I showed up today with baggy jeans that were hanging down around here and a big thick gold chain and a backwards flat billed hat, and sunglasses on, and I'd say, yo, yo, what's up? Here to worship JC this morning. Give a shout. You'd be like, pastor, are you okay? (laughs) Like, is everything okay with you because something's not right? Oh, what are you judging me? What, I can't be a Christian because I wear a big gold chain? No, it's just that this isn't the norm for you. And so again, we need to make sure that the norm for us is looking and acting like a Christian. Now, does that mean that every guy has to get a, you know, a, a, a number one haircut on the side with a little bit on the top, the length of an ID card on the top? Not meaning that. What I'm saying is you should act and look like a Christian. People shouldn't be shocked to find out that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what this verse is saying. Man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. But again, we're not comparing ourselves to other people. It's not like everybody has to dress like me or be like me. Live and act like Jesus. That's the idea behind that. But the thing that makes Christianity so counterculture is this. In God's economy, the way up is actually down. You see, the world says build a name for yourself, build a platform for yourself, build a brand for yourself. We live in a world today where people don't even really have to have jobs. They just call themselves social media influencers. And they create a brand for themselves. They would never post this because that's not really on brand for them. And they want to use their platform to raise awareness for the way that plastic straws have decimated sea turtles. And now everybody has to use paper straws that fall apart the first time you drink through them. Story for a different day. But here's what God says. I don't want you to make a platform for yourself. I don't want you to try to create, get status for yourself. I don't want you to even promote yourself. I just want you to serve and love me. And in God's economy, Jesus said this, whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and whoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. God takes the ladder where people want to put themselves on the top of the ladder and the people who willingly put themselves on the bottom, and God takes the ladder and he flips it around. That's why God says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Because if you really want to be great in God's economy, find a place to jump in and serve. And when it comes to the top things that impress God, that are useful to God, God says the love of others rules everything. Top of the list, most important, love for God, love for others. Jesus even said this, you want to sum up the entire Bible? Jesus said this, love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. And here's what he said, on this hangs all the law and the prophets. <laughs> the whole Bible could be summarized in two commandments, love God, love other people. And that rules everything. Jesus went so far as to say this, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, not by the type of clothes that you wear, the type of haircut that you have, the type of language that you use. All people will know that you're my disciples by your love for other people and again lest we think that love is some ooey gooey emotion and some guy says oh, i'm not really the lovey-dovey type so that's not my thing love is not an emotion love is an action love is a choice love is putting you ahead of me love is taking care of what you need before i take care of what i need because you are more important than me that's what love is That's why marriages break down because they're not built on love. They're built on lust, attraction, and some contractual relationship. That if you do for me, I'll do for you. And when you stop doing for me, I'll stop doing for you. That's when marriages disintegrate. But when marriages can thrive and prosper is when they say, hey, I'm more concerned about how you're doing than I am concerned about me. How are you? Hey, I want to do this because I know this is important for you. I really couldn't care less about this, but I know it's important to you, so now it's important to me. That's where marriages thrive, because they're built on love. And love for other people. Hey, I'm more concerned with how you're doing than how I'm doing. That's where Christianity really begins to shine. Because you see, the world says people are to be used. Use up somebody, discard them, and move on to the next person. Dating relationships, I get what I want out of this relationship. When I'm done with it, I discard it, move on. Sexual relationships, I use this person for what I want. When I'm done with it, I discard it, I move on. Work is no different. I'll use these people to advance myself, to step on their heads to get where I'm going because when I'm done with them, I'm done with them. But Christianity says people aren't to be used People are to be loved. People aren't objects. People are souls that Jesus died for. Like Christianity flips all that over on its head. That it doesn't matter if you're the janitor that scrubs toilets or you're the administrator of the education system. You're valuable to Christ and your value is equal. And we love everyone. That's part of what Christianity is. That's what makes it so different than everything else because we don't love people for the value that they bring. We love the unlovable because that's how Jesus loved. Jesus didn't love you and I because we're good or we're good looking or we're bringing a lot to the table. Jesus loved us despite ourselves. And when we love as Jesus loved, we love people despite who they are. That's one of the reasons why I love who we call a Baptist church because it's some of the greatest people I've ever met in my entire life go to church here. Some of the finest Christians I know worship Jesus here, are part of the church family here. And so people are what makes this church great. People are what matter to God. And so again, Christianity is so countercultural because we say people matter, not just to advance our agenda, not just to posture But people really matter. That's one of the things that grinds my gears about social justice. How many people cared about Asian Pacific racism three months ago? Nobody did. But now everybody does. And how do they show their support? They change their profile photo. They use a hashtag. That's support. No, change who you are. We don't want token support. We don't want token talk. We don't want virtue signaling. We want people to change. And then what changes people? Hashtags don't change people. Political actions don't change people. The gospel changes people. And again, the root of racism is pride. And so if we do away with pride and we begin to love people because they bring value, to, or we can bring value through the gospel, not because they bring some value to us, that makes Christianity counterculture. Next thing that makes Christianity counterculture is service is the opportunity for greatness. <clears throat> I had the opportunity to sit down with Trey a few weeks ago and begin to talk about what it meant for him to be a pastoral assistant at who he called I said, it works like this, Trey, it's me and you. And whatever I don't do, you're responsible for. He said, okay. That's it. I didn't say, I'm going to give you this title and here's the salary that comes with it and here's the benefits that come with it. And here's the people that you'll be in charge of. Here's the people that you can boss around. Here's where I see you in five years as you move up the ladder, as you prove yourself. You know, at the end of all this, I'll get you a nice little gold watch and we'll all retire in Maui somewhere, right? None of that. Hey, dude, this is a place to serve. If you want to join the team, you're joining the team, you're going to shoot up, you're going to roll up your sleeves, you're going to get to work. This is what we do. Because service is an opportunity for greatness. Jesus didn't come to a position... Jesus was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. He is Lord. And while he never gave up any of that, he gave up the privileges that came with being part of the Godhead. We saw that in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus laid aside the prerogatives of his deity and took upon himself the form of a slave, a servant that just did what needed to be done. And that's where greatness is found. As the disciples walk down the road, they're talking in the background, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, whoever's going to be great is going to be the servant of all. That much I do know. And James and John pipe up, says, hey, can we sit in your kingdom? Can I sit on the left and my brother on the right? And in one case, the mom. Can you imagine how embarrassing mom goes to Jesus? excuse me, Jesus, I was just wondering about my boys over here. Do you have a minute I could talk about them? James and John, you might know them. Can they sit on both sides of you in your your kingdom? And Jesus goes, you don't know what you're asking. You don't even get it. What were they looking for? They were looking for a position. They They were literally looking for a place at the throne. Literally. And Jesus says, guys, you got it backwards. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I didn't come for a position. I came to serve. And Jesus says the way you find greatness is through serving other people. Luke chapter 22, verse 26. It shall not be so, but he that's greatest among you. Let him be as the younger. He that is chief is he that does serve. For whether it's greater, he that sitteth at me, or he that serveth. It's not he that sitteth at me, but I'm among you as he that serveth. Jesus uses an example. Who's in charge? Who's the boss? The person sitting at a meal? At the head of the table, while the waiter or waitress comes by and serves them? Or is it the person who's serving? And Jesus says, I'm the one that's serving the table. You know where greatness is? It's the one who's willing to do the work. Anybody can sit back and be served. That's not greatness in God's economy. Greatness is the one who chooses to serve. I'm so thankful by the spirit here at Huey Cala Baptist Church of church members who want to get involved and want to serve and want to be used of God. I love that about our church family. Oftentimes people will say, Hey, Pastor, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, even if it's cleaning bathrooms and scrubbing toilets. I say, Good. You know why? Because I scrub toilets and clean bathrooms. You know what I showed Trey this morning? Hey, Trey, welcome to Huey Cala. Before the service starts, we'll come to the bathrooms and make sure that they're clean. We check the toilet paper and paper towels here's the key for the soap dispenser in case we run out of soap. That's what we did today. We didn't sit back in some green room, kick back with our feet up, drinking coffee, talking about, you know, hey, here's the numbers and here's the latest giving records that we have and stuff like that. Ha, ha, ha. Let's go out there. Hey, can somebody bring us some more cream for our coffee in here? I think we ran out. No. Hey, here's how you change out the toilet paper. Here's where the toilet paper's at. You know why? Because it's all about service. You're gonna be great here? Find a place to jump in and serve. You know some of the greatest servants we have in our entire church? They're in there with kids right now. And you know that many of the people that serve in our children's ministry, I'd say probably 50% of the people that serve in children's ministry don't have children of their own. They're not just doing a rotation because somebody's watching their kids. They love Jesus and want to serve. Hey, point me somewhere and I'll go after it. And it, it thrills my heart to see people find their jam in children's ministry. This is why... Like, God created me. I think at Kaz and Kelly Coasterball, Thatcher, Thatcher was in children's ministry a couple weeks ago, and he goes, Dad, like, I think Kaz was built for super church." He's like, what do you mean by that? And he's just like, he's just fired up. He's got energy. He's prepared. He's like, make somebody sit down and listen and pay attention. And he says, he speaks to them like they're adults. And he goes, and they listen. <laughs> was, what? Where did this guy come from, right? But here's the thing. Kaz, like six months ago, was like, I'll help out wherever. Where do you want me to go? Children's ministry. He's like, I'll give it a shot. And he's like, my wife's the best at it, but I'll be her helper. And man, what do you know? The guy found his jam, you know? How did he find that? I'm willing to do whatever. It's not my thing, but I'll give it a shot. That's what God's looking for. God's not interested in your ability. He's interested in your availability. God can use anything. God used a stick to part the Red Sea. Think about that for a second. God asked Moses, Moses, what do you have in your hand? He was like, a stick, a rod. And God said, throw it down and turn into a snake. He said, pick it back up. I would have said, nope, I'm good. (laughs) But he picked it back up. That stick that he had. And when he parted the Red Sea, you know what God told him? Take the rod of God. Ooh, I love that. It was just a stick when Moses had it, but when God get it, gets it, it's the rod of God and a part of the Red Sea and the Israelites walk through on dry land. I'm talking about not ability, availability. Willingness to serve. God use me. Interested in ser- serving who we call it? Really easy. Become a member of our church. Low entry requirements. Be saved. Be baptized. If you're not saved, we'll help you get saved. If you're not baptized, we'll baptize you next weekend. And be committed to following after Jesus. Easy. And we'll put you in a place where you can serve, where you say, this is what I want to do. Because service is an opportunity for greatness. Another reason why Christianity is counterculture, because humility is the path to exaltation. You want to be great, humble yourself first. You see, that's the opposite. The world says, we walk all over humble people. You want to humble yourself, we'll just step on your head on the way to the top. But God says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. If you humble yourself in due time, God will exalt you. Turn back to, if you turn back from Philippians, turn back to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, verse number seven. But things were gained to me, I counted those as lost for Christ verse 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things. Here's what Paul says. All things but lost for the excellency of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Here's what Paul says. Everything that I have I consider to loss compared to Jesus. Notice he says all things. Take a look again at verse number 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung that I may win Christ. Paul said, I was willing to lose everything to follow Jesus." Jesus. I was willing to give up everything that I had to follow after Jesus. But here's the important thing. You might have heard somebody sometimes give a testimony of like, oh, I was a promising college baseball player, and I gave up that to follow Jesus. Or, man, I sacrificed a career at a Fortune 500 company and walked away from, you know, a $100,000 salary to follow after Jesus. And and I I haven't missed a day in my life. Please understand this. Paul didn't say, I gave up these things to follow after Jesus. Here's what Paul says. These things were a loss to me. Like, They didn't even matter anymore. It wasn't like, I have to sacrifice this and give it away. It was actually a loss, not a win. Circumcised the eighth day, loss, not win. A Hebrew of Hebrews, loss, not win. A Pharisee, definitely a loss, not a win. And he goes on, of all the things that he had done, knowing the law, keeping the law, being blameless, he says, all those things were a loss to me. And the only win that I had was Jesus Christ. And, and please understand this. In my life, Angie and I have considered loss a lot of things that we had gained. For us, we bought a, a beautiful home in, in Southern California. where We were serving on staff. But we realized that we weren't living by faith any longer. We chose to count that as a loss, not a win. But please understand, we didn't sacrifice anything. And we as Christians need to be really careful using the term sacrifice when it comes to God. When we're talking about the person who's given us everything. what I, I gave away a house and a dog. God gave me his son. <laughs> Those aren't the same level of sacrifices. I'll never meet that level of sacrifice, but here's the good thing. I don't have to. God doesn't ask me to pay him back. God just asks me to live for him. Different. And whatever I had going for me, I consider that being in the loss category and the only other win that I have in my life is Jesus Christ. My marriage is a win because it was founded on Jesus Christ. My kids are a win only because we've trained them from a child in the way that they should go. That's the only reason my kids are a win. Any financial thing that's come along to me or any possession that I have, it's a loss compared to Jesus Seriously, that's what Paul's saying here. Because in God's economy, pursuing Jesus not thing is the the way to get things. You see, so many times we go after stuff and then we're disappointed when we get that stuff. Here's the thing, when you chase after stuff, you need to understand a couple of things. First of all, the world's success is a moving target because what was really cool 20 years ago isn't cool anymore. I remember... When I, uh, when I joined the Navy, I wanted a Chevy Blazer. The new Blazer had just come out. Oh, it was so, so nice. And I went to the dealership, and you know, here I am, uh, you know E2, and this guy see, sees me coming a mile away. All you have to do is provide your LES. We'll get you in a really good deal, you know, 24% interest, you know, low payment you can afford. And the only question I have, does it come in black? That's the only question. Did you come in black? No. I got in this beautiful royal blue, though. Hmm. I like it. I like it a lot. And you laugh now, because can you imagine me driving a royal blue Chevy Blazer? 1995 Chevy Blazer. Royal blue. And you're going, that dude made it. Look at him. Now, from time to time, I see some guy rolling around town in a... 93 Z28 that I like that I like when I was in high school. I go, ooh, that's a cool car, right? But I don't look at those guys. And go, man, they made it, you know? You know why? Because that's a moving target. Success is a moving target. I remember like a year or so ago, there was a guy who's brand spanking new red Corvette. I mean, Stingray. It was decked out to the hilt. I mean, this this guy had bought it like two hours ago because it was gleaming all over, gorgeous. He pulls up next to us, and, and I look over, and I was just like, that's a gorgeous car, and I'm staring. He knows that I'm staring. He enjoys the fact that I'm staring. And I'm sitting there I go, dude, that is just smoking hot. And I'm like, look looking. And Thatcher was with me, and Thatcher said, have you seen the 2021 Corvette? And I go, oh, yes, <gasps> oh, my soul. The 2021, they moved it to a mid-engine, and the thing looks like a Ferrari. And I looked at that guy's stingray, and I thought, I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> like, if you had just waited another 12 months, dude, like, and then I thought to myself, like, it was awesome for a minute until I realized what else was out there, right? And if you haven't seen the new Corvette, oh, my soul, you got to look at their, uh, There There's no lie. This is no lie. Like, like, two Saturdays ago, there was a Lamborghini, a Corvette, a Porsche, and a Ferrari that were parked in all four parking spots here on one street. I thought somebody was doing something nice for their pastor, but they weren't. <laughs> No lie, I walked through and looked at every single one of those cars. If I had to pick one of those cars, I would have picked the Corvette. It was gorgeous. Oh, my goodness, gorgeous. But here's the thing. The guy with the Lamborghini thought that he made it, but I would have picked another car over his. You know why? Because success is a moving target. And what was cool 20 years ago isn't cool anymore. And so you'll always be chasing after the world's success. But here's the awesome thing that Jesus says. Jesus himself made you a promise. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek after God and do everything he says, and all these things will be added unto you. Everything that you want, you'll have if you just put Jesus first. And you say, well, does that mean I'll get a, a Corvette or a Lamborghini? No, you missed the point. Because if you put Jesus first and you pursue his righteousness, you'll realize at the end of the day, those are just cars And I wouldn't want to pay the insurance on any of those cars that were parked out there, much less the car payment that comes with them. And so those things don't hold any allure over me. And frankly, if I had that Corvette, I would have to like have somebody, hey, could you pick up my kids and take them to school because I can't fit all my kids in one car, right? Because at the end of the day, that's not what my heart desires. And again, God's word promises you this, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Put God first, he'll take care of all the details. But know this, God is not an idle giver. God doesn't give you the things that the world says is successful. He gives you the things that you say is successful. And let me just tell you this, once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you won't want the things of the world. If I asked anybody who's been walking with Jesus for more than a decade, would you rather have a new Corvette or would you, would you rather have the peace of God in your heart? Anybody is gonna know, I'll take the peace of God any day, any day. Hey, I'll get you a brand new Mercedes SUV or you can have the joy of the Lord in your heart. Which would you choose? Any Christian that knows the Lord would say, I'll take the joy of the Lord any day. That's what it means when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart because you don't really want a new car. You don't really want a better job. You want love, joy, peace, long suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, temperance, faith. That's what you want in your life. You don't want stuff. And God knows that. But here's the thing, what impresses the world must be counted as a loss to gain the joy of Christ. I can't be enamored with the things of this world and still chase after Christ. Jesus said this, if you're not with me, you're against me. Jesus said this, no man can serve two masters. He'll love the one and cleave to the other or hate the one and cleave to the other. But you can't serve God. And he said money as well but you can't serve this world and serve God at the same time. You gotta pick a side. And here's the thing. You say, well, I'll do the Jesus thing for a bit and I'll I'll try that out and see how that works for me and still live for the world. So many times Christians wanna continue their worldly way of living and then dabble in the things of God on the side. It doesn't work. Here's what God says in his word. He says you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm and I will spew you out of my mouth. The word spew, the only time that word is used in the Bible means to vomit. (laughs) You want to be a halfway Christian? Good. You make Jesus want to vomit. Not my words, it's the Bible's words. Pick a side. You'll never find joy in a half-hearted commitment to Christ. You'll never find fulfillment and contentment on casual Christianity. And To be a real Christian is going to run counter to the culture that we live in. So, a few final questions. First of all, are you pursuing the world's success and accolades? If so, you'll be disappointed. Again, if we take a look at Philippians chapter 3, verse number 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things. And here's the thing. I've, I've counted it a loss of all things, but frankly, I do count them, but dung that I may win Christ. The word dung that's used here is the Greek word uh, skubalon. Only time in the entire Bible that this one word is used. And depending on your English translation, King James uses the word dung. Other English translations use the word refuse or rubbish or garbage. But the word dung in the strongest terms, means solid animal excrement. That's what it means. Big steaming pile of turds or whatever you want to call it. Now, you say, well, that's pretty crude. Paul's saying, that's how much I thought of everything I've accomplished in life. Big huge pile of worthlessness. Compared to Jesus Christ. Now, the world might have been impressed with this. Fellow Jews of Paul would have thought that, like, Paul's like top notch Jew. And Paul even says, like, I was Jew of Jews, right? But he says, all that is in the loss category. And the only win that I have is Jesus. And I was willing to count it all a loss to gain Christ, the joy that was in Christ. But if you're living for the world's accolades, please know it doesn't last. Because there's always somebody coming along that's better. There's always some, gonna somebody who's smarter, richer, more accomplished. <laughs> Little known fact about your pastor here. Angela and I used to own a computer training consulting company uh, here in Honolulu down at Restaurant Row. 500 Alamuano Boulevard used to be our, uh, our offices that we had. Did you know, this is going to be quite impressive to some of you, in the year 2002... Your pastor was selected as one of the top 100 high-tech leaders in Hawaii. Did you know that? I've got a certificate somewhere in a box somewhere, stuck somewhere. Did you know that? Are you impressed by that? No, because it was 2002, it was 20 years ago. Who else was on the list? I have no idea. Was that impressive at the time? Yeah, they invited me to a dinner that I had to pay $500 to go to. What? Okay. And then I had to actually pay to get the certificate, but I wanted the certificate, right? And they would, they would send you a trophy, but you had to pay for your own trophy and stuff like that. I, I think it was a racket. But nevertheless, you're impressed by that, aren't you? No, you're not impressed. It's just like, okay, what are you doing with it now? Nothing. What do you do with technology now? Nothing. I do our church website and our podcast and our app and stuff. Are you impressed by that? Uh, but at the end of the day, does it matter? No. You know why? Because it had a very short time frame. Because you know what? In 2003, they came out with another list. And guess who wasn't on it in 2003? was on it you know why because the world's accolades don't last success of the world doesn't last But when you gain christ you get that not just for this lifetime but for eternity important question introspective question is god pleased with your life does god look at your life and go yes yes that's what i'm looking for Or does God look and go, wow, of everything I've given you, that's what you did with it? You know, it's interesting. There's two times in the Bible that I think of off the top of my head. There's probably more if you study the scriptures out. But two that off the top of my head I think of where the Bible says that God is pleased by your life. Hebrews 11, 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. But Paul tells Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who needeth not to be ashamed. That if we study God's word and we live by faith, that God is pleased by those things. So if you're not living by faith, you're not spending time in the Word, God's not really impressed by all the other stuff you're doing. So, does your life please God? If not, fix it. Simple as that. I'm not here to present a problem without a solution. I'm here to say that if your problem is you're not living for Jesus, start living for Jesus. It's not difficult. Seek you first the kingdom of God and then just do whatever God says. Really easy. But is your life pleasing to God? Next question, introspective question. What in life have you learned is a loss, not a gain? You know, again, when we were self-employed and I could set my own hours, I thought that that was a, a win. Ended up it was a loss. I thought being self-employed would be a win, but it was actually just a loss. I thought being able to achieve some level of status was a win, it was a loss. I remember at called. I thought to myself, man, if we could ever get 100 people in one church service, like, we would have made it, you know? Like, we made it, do you know what I found? 100 was just a number. And here's here's even crazier. This thought of my mind, like if we could just get 100 people in church, that would be totally awesome. We would have made it. Celebrating a win of having 100 people in church when you live on an island of 1 million people that need to know Jesus is not a win at all. It's a loss. We've seen unprecedented growth for our church in the last 90 days. I don't consider that so much a win as much as a loss in the fact that we still need have more people that need to know Jesus. And so we're not going to sit back and, and throw a big party because we're seeing growth. We're going to redouble our efforts and get out there and steward that growth to reach more people for the cause of Christ. Now, and again, at the end of the day, I'm not concerned with how many people showed up for church on Sunday. I'm concerned with how many people are walking with Jesus every day. And again, there's not a category in this spreadsheet for that, only you and God know that. But I'll see the fruit in your life. You'll see the fruit in your life. Other people will see the fruit in your life. But we really need to go back to taking a look at the scorecard and say what is a loss and what's a win? One of the men in our church got advanced and promoted at work. He said, Pastor, at the end of the day, glory to God for it. It's just another opportunity to use that to be able to serve God. Yes. And here's the thing. If you had not got promoted, you know what he's going to do? Continue to live for Jesus and continue to love his family. hey, Sounds like a win to me. But if God's, what God's given me now is not a, a change in my uniform or a change in my pay grade, but now it's a more opportunity for influence for the cause of Christ, man, that's a win. Final question here, this is really important. What in your life is holding you back from fully pursuing Christ? Maybe you need to be baptized, but something's keeping you from doing that. Maybe you need to enroll in discipleship, but maybe your pride's keeping you back from doing that. Maybe you need to follow after Jesus, but there's some sin in your life that you don't want to let go of, holding you back. Whatever it is, I promise you this, it's not worth it. Pursue Jesus at all costs. You'll never be disappointed, guaranteed. Just do it. Can you imagine standing before God one day, and God saying, why didn't you just pull the trigger and live for me? And we said, because of some stupid sin? Because of some obligation I'd made to work? Because what other people would say about me? And how embarrassing that would be. But I want to stand before God, and I want to help you prepare yourself to stand before God one day and say, I wasn't perfect, but I did my best, and I lived with this moment in mind for my entire life, the day that I stood before you. And I just want to hear you say it, God. Well done. That's all I want to hear. That's what I'm living for. In this life, Paul says, all the religious stuff I did, garbage, it's a wash, it's over and done with, it's in the past, and this is the one thing that I've gained, Jesus Christ. Perspective. And that is so counter to the culture that we live in. But that's what Christianity is. The most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, Please be saved today. Otherwise, none of this makes sense to you. I can't imagine standing on the outside hearing, wait, you're telling people not to pursue status? That doesn't make sense. You're telling people not to pursue success? That doesn't make sense. So if that's you today, you say, I don't really know if this makes sense or not. Are you a Christian? If not, today you can be. It's not a matter of joining our church or becoming a Baptist. It's a matter matter of knowing for sure your sins are forgiven. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, Please don't leave here today without knowing 100% sure that heaven's your home. For those of us that are Christians, let's figure out what living for Jesus really looks like for us and realize what's, what's really a loss and what's really a, a gain. It all comes back to Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.